Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. One silver lining during the pandemic has been the wealth of cultural offerings available online. Later in the hour, we'll hear about a virtual series from The Temple on the art of the conductor, featuring Yoel Levy with journalist Bob Barr. In a moment, the Academy Antonio Award-winning playwright Alfred Urey will tell us about his upcoming virtual event with the Bremen Museum. First, I'm Lois Reitzes. It is our year-end member drive and we're asking devoted listeners like you to become WABE members. Maybe you didn't know this, but 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta area, and that's why we need your help. Become a sustaining member with a gift of $5 a month at wabe.org slash donate, or call 678 678- Five five three ninety ninety. I'm joined this hour by Scott Wolfel, our Chief Content Officer. Welcome. Thank you, Lois. It's good to be here with you. And you know, we have two great reasons to donate right now. First, your gift to WABE will help fave for City Lights, which we're all love and listen to all the time. But it will also help our community partner, the Atlanta Community Food Bank. When you give right now, you'll provide 10 meals to an Atlanta neighbor or family in need. Food insecurity has more than doubled since the start of the pandemic, and your donation right now can make a big difference. This is the last day of our partnership with the Atlanta Community Food Bank in 2020. So please go to wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Fifteen dollars is the average monthly donation, but even a gift of just five dollars a month will go a really long way. That's wabe.org/donate. And thank you. My name is William Ransom, and I live in Decatur. I have kind of a, a personal history with public radio because my parents listened to it all the time, so it became sort of the theme of our our lives, the the background. And it was just a natural to continue that as I've grown and been more able financially to help support things that are important to me, that is always at the forefront. Thank you, Will. 
many of you know, Will Ransom is a superb pianist and director of the Emory Chamber Music Society, which provides free concerts throughout the year for our Atlanta community. If public radio is the soundtrack to your life, please support us. Consider joining right now as a monthly sustainer. It only takes a few minutes at wabe.org slash donate or by calling 678-553-9090. Thanks. Think how important WABE is to Metro Atlanta. WABE keeps you informed and in touch with everything that happens in this exciting, dynamic city. And to keep this essential programming on the air, we need your support. As a member, you make a difference because donations are our greatest source of funding. Give now at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. With a new sustainer donation of $5 a month, we'll send you our brand new face mask. Choose from two designs, the WABE mask or Forever I Love Atlanta mask. Each is made of cotton and polyester fabric designed to protect you from both dust and germs. They're designed for a snug, comfortable fit and are ideal for long-term use. As 2020 comes to a close, please consider how much you rely on WABE. And remember that WABE relies on listeners just like you. Please become a sustainer at wabe.org donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you. Remember, we're partnering with the Atlanta Community Food Bank today. So when you give to WABE right now, you will also provide 10 meals to an Atlanta neighbor or family in need. How about a contribution of just $5 a month? That's about the cost of a movie rental. Please give a December gift at wabe.org slash Donate or call 678-553-9090. Thanks so much. Southerners do not have a monopoly on storytelling, but certainly have made it an art form. Alfred Urey is among those in the Southern pantheon of storytellers. The first playwright to win the Tony the Oscar, and the Pulitzer Prize. Atlanta takes special pride in this native son, and we're delighted to talk with him now via Zoom. Alfred Urey, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Good to be here. We last spoke in early November for the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame event. This Sunday, you will give a talk for the Bremen Museum of Jewish Heritage, and the topic is the intersection of race and religion. I think race and religion has always been a part of what I write about one way or another, because it was just, it was there in my bones from the time I was born. Yes. How did you approach the racial relationship between Miss Daisy and Hoke, the difference in their relationship? Well, clearly I, I wasn't trying to make a 
lecture or, or, or change anybody's mind. I was just giving a pretty much snapshots of the relationship between an old or a white lady and a, and a black man who drove her around and how that relationship changed over the years. I always pictured them as sort of like I picture families that, that Hulk and Miss Daisy are like in a train and the big window and the world is going by outside and uh, their political events, their racial events, his family events, but the day-to-day -day between them is affected somewhat, but stays the same all those years. And that's what I wanted to write about. Although she grows kinder. She grows more tolerant, yes. But there's always, there's always a wall, there's always something. And I think now, many generations later, it would be much better. When the play came out, when the movie was released, there was tremendous praise. And the friendship that Miss Daisy and Hope develop and what's portrayed on screen, which ultimately is one of love, was held up as an example. In more recent years, there have been attacks on stories which have been accused of portraying a so-called white savior approach. Did you find that hurtful? I think a big mistake in the world is trying to turn the, the past into the present. You can't do that. The past is the past and it happened the way it happened. And I think both of them made the world now more possible by beginning to realize that there could be warmth between the two and not just master and servant. But to have, to have the story of Driving Miss Daisy take place in the year 2020 wouldn't make any sense. This is a story of mid-century Atlanta, of a privileged older Jewish woman and a black driver. And they were what they were. And uh, I, I can't make him into some firebrand or her into some something she wasn't. It was just two people who had no, no choice but to live together day to day. And uh, this is how they grew. And they did grow in their tolerance of each other and their understanding of each other's situation. They grew somewhat, but it, it stopped. I mean, they loved each other dearly, like family. And yet there was still a, a wall of something in between. I mean, now it wouldn't mean anything. It means nothing for black people and older people or younger people to marry white people. It means nothing anymore. It's fine. And it just wasn't. Miss Daisy took place about 75, 80 years ago. So things have changed. Good. When we spoke before the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame event, I had asked you about exploring Jewish identity through your work. How do you address that in Parade and in The Last Night at Ballyhoo? Well, uh, I grew up in a generation that was a result of the awful Leo Frank case. And my generation 
of German Jews, at least in our set, had Christmas trees <clears throat> and Easter egg hunts and no Jewish ceremonies at all. Although we were, a lot of us, confirmed when we were 15 at the temple, which in those days had almost no Jewish accoutrements. There was no cantor, there was no real Jewish music. So therefore, we had sort of nothing. It would have been easier to be, I don't know, a Baptist or Episcopalian or something, because we, I, I went to one Seder in my life when I was about 10 or 11, I guess, and it was just foreign country to me. It's just too bad. It would have been nice. I remember my grandfather doing this or my Aunt Miriam doing that, but that didn't exist. So we grew up, for those of us who grew up that way, we grew up sort of gypped out of the good things about being Jewish. Because of fear about the Leo Frank case. Could you explain briefly what Parade is about? Parade's about a man who was 27 years old, takes place in the year 1913, and he was a factory supervisor. He was accused of murdering a 12-year-old factory worker named Mary Fagan, strangling her to death, and uh, that was it. He was accused, he was convicted, he was sentenced to hang, and then that was commuted to life, and then he was hung indeed by uh, a group of Barry Fagan, Red Deck, I don't know who they were. Well, but we do know who they were now. They were white citizens who drove down to the jailhouse in, in Milledgeville, drove him all the way up to Marietta, Georgia, hung him from a tree. And he was innocent. we pretty sure he was innocent. I would say 99.9. .9. So here was a Jewish man, and do you think the ripples of that horrible event were enough to make Jews such as your family, your ancestors at that time in Atlanta want to assimilate all the more? Well, I think it was the generation between him and me, which would be my parents and their friends and their cousins and those people, the people who were children in the Leo Frank years, who realized with horror that Leo Frank, a very certified German Jew, was considered by everybody that wasn't Jewish, just another Jew. And here these people had tried for generations to assimilate and assimilate and assimilate. I think they were in shock. There was a uh, friend of my parents who if Leo Frank's name was mentioned, he got up and walked out of the room. It was something they just didn't want to think about. It was too horrible to contemplate. You address some of the warmth and pride and heritage that Eastern European Jews have in Last Night at Ballyhoo. When did you come to feel more of a kindred spirit with your Jewish heritage? Well, I moved to New York when I was graduating from college. That'll do it. It didn't hurt. And uh, <laughs> I had my collaborator and my dear friend was Eastern European Jew, not particularly religious, but he had those connections. And 
my wife, who was Episcopalian when we married, said, uh, we're going to have satyrs. After a few years, she said that. And I said, well, how are we going to do that? I don't know any Hebrew. She said, we're going to have them. And her cousin turns out to be married to, to a guy who uh, went to Hebrew school and could read Hebrew. So we began having satyrs. That was 30-something years ago. And it became a family tradition, although it didn't go back hundreds of years. It was too bad. But that's how it started. I never went to temple again, except for funerals and a couple of bar mitzvahs. And I went to Israel twice. And I kind of saw the light, realizing that everybody I was looking at was Jewish. And it made me not ashamed. I mean, I was raised with the way I look, which is pretty Semitic. Nobody said this, but it was kind of like, this is something you have to live with. It's like having a lame leg, you make the best of it. And nobody told me that, but that's what it was like. It took me years to think, hey, this is a good thing. Not only is it a good thing, but I'm missing most of the wonderful traditions that would make me proud. Terrible. So you rekindled it. I started being proud of being Jewish. I'm not, I don't go to temple. I don't do those things, but I understand and I feel why it matters. One very positive aspect about Jewish Black relations is that history of Jews active during the civil rights movement, and in particular at the temple where you grew up, where we have belonged for 35 years, and the pride that the congregation takes in its commitment to social and racial justice. Well, I think a lot of that's due to uh, Rabbi Rothschild, Jack Rothschild, Yes, he, he was a visionary. So he brought a political zeal to being Jewish, which was terrific, and we needed it. I don't know that Atlanta Jews who were at the temple were particularly political because before that, I, I just don't think so. He instilled a social conscience. Yes, he did. And, and furthered humanity. As a matter of fact, just Yesterday, there was an article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with a big photo of the current rabbi, our rabbi at the temple, Peter Berg, right. with the Reverend Raphael Warnock. Yes, it's wonderful. Talking about the continued beauty of the relationship between the temple and Ebenezer Baptist Church. And of course, that is another moment you captured in Driving Miss Daisy when she was on her way to go hear Dr. King speak. Right. She balked at the idea of inviting Hope to come with her, although she was going to a dinner to celebrate the two coming together. She couldn't quite put it on a personal basis. But didn't he decline? Yeah, but he, he declined because 
he had a high sense of what was what you what was right to do and what wasn't right to do. And she asked him kind of reluctantly and sideways at the last minute. And he said, if you wanted me to go, why you asked me a month ago when the invitation came? He was proud. And uh, she had to face that. What Dr. King said that night, actually, it, it was got, they got to use it in the film. He said something about the fault here, some, some lies with the good white people who didn't say anything. It's true, it's true. They let it happen because they didn't know any better. Now we know better. We, we never thought ever how it must feel to be a black person until maybe this year we didn't really think, white people didn't really think how black people must feel all the time about being citizens in this country. I know James Baldwin said something about the, give me your tired, your poor. He said, that wasn't for me. That's heartbreaking. It is. It's tragic that it took the murders of innocent people over the past year to reach this height of racial reckoning. But there has been a reckoning. And right. So, but if you if you go back to Miss Daisy 30 years ago and say, why did they behave the way they behaved? Well, they behaved the way they behaved because that's when they were alive. Uh, and I repeat, you can't turn the past into the present. But you're right, it, it really, I believe that this year may be marked the change, well, they're really good, about our really understanding what it would be like. Playwright Alfred Urey, he'll be part of a free virtual event, a Q&A on race and religion in his works with the Bremen Museum this Sunday beginning at 4 p.m. More information will be on our website wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. We're in our year-end member drive, and it's the time of year when we do something special, when we take a leap of faith and ask you to support the programs you love, programs like City Lights. That's because 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. Please join the tens of thousands of WABE listeners who are members, make your donation now by calling 678-553-9090 or going online to wabe.org slash donate. 
I'm Lois Reitzes, here with you and our Chief Content Officer, Scott Wolfel. Hello, Lois. And, you know, right now in this hour, we have a very special incentive to donate to WABE. In a season when a lot of us are surrounded by so much, it's important to remember those who aren't as fortunate. Thousands of our Atlanta neighbors just don't know where their next meal will come from. But your donation to WABE will support our partnership with the Atlanta Community Food Bank. For every gift we get right now, 10 meals will be donated to an Atlanta neighbor or family in need. Even a gift of $5 a month goes a long way. Please give right now at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. And thank you. We know that millions of people listen to public radio every day, but what about the other super fans? Like Jake the dog, who is such a big fan of public radio that he listens every day. He is part shepherd, part husky, uh, about 65 pounds. He is quite chonky. He listens to NPR a good eight hours a day sometimes. And when his favorite show, All Things Considered, comes on, he sings along with the theme song. I'm Ari Shapiro, co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. Jake can't support the public radio that he loves, but you can. When you support this station, you ensure that everyone, including Jake, gets to keep enjoying the news that you rely on every day. Make a donation right now. Thanks. Do you hum along to theme songs when shows like City Lights or All Things Considered come on? By the way, the City Lights theme was composed and recorded by Atlanta-based trumpeter and big band leader Joe Granston. B.J. Lederman wrote the All Things Considered and Morning Edition theme songs you've been listening for years. Yeah, you hum along. Be the person who Jake the dog wags a tail at. Just go to wabe.org slash donate or call us at 678-553-9090. It just takes a few minutes to make your donation. You'll make Jake a happy dog and us happy as well. You know, there's nothing like public radio. And here in Atlanta, there's nothing like WABE. For just a fraction of what you spend on your cable bill, your cell phone bill, you can help support all the unique and important programming that you hear on WABE. From Closer Look with Rose Scott to, of course, City Lights with Lois Reitzes to Political Breakfast with Dennis O'Hare. And you'll also support our award-winning newsroom. Becoming a sustaining member with a gift of just $5 a month will help ensure that innovative, intelligent programming continues to thrive on WABE. Call 678-553-9090 or make your contribution at wabe.org slash donate. When you become a sustainer with a donation of $5 a month, we'd love to send you our WABE beanie cap. A trendy cold weather choice, this red and blue striped beanie has a distinct WABE patch stitched on a thick black rim. This snug winter cap will keep you nice and warm and looking your best. In 2021, you can expect more of WABE's reliable news coverage every day, and your year-end donation helps make it possible. Please make your first ever sustainer donation at wabe.org donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you. We need your support. And remember, please, we're trying to help our hungry neighbors today. So we're partnering with the Atlanta Community Food Bank, 
When you give right now, you will also provide 10 meals to a family or individual who really can use some help this December. Please consider that donation amount we talked about earlier, just $5 a month. Then go to wabe.org slash donate. Thanks very much. If you have ever wondered why so many women adore shoes, a new documentary explores the various reasons. Adeline Gasana is the Atlanta-based filmmaker of High on Heels. He's with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Would you give listeners a brief summary of the documentary High on Heels? High on Heels is a short documentary film on high heels. High heels is an experience for women. It represents beauty, sexuality, sophistication, empowerment. So we go into the history of it and we touch on the medical health aspect of it and really just explain about how high heels is much more than just a shoe for women. Yeah, in fact, you provide history going all the way back to the 15th century. Would you tell us the first discovery of high heels? The first real known understanding of the high heel shoe really dates back to the 10th century. Persian cavalry men used high heel footwear to keep their foot in stirrups as they were riding horseback in war. So in many ways, heels in those early days, it was an instrument of war. And then, of course, the evolution changed where high heels really became a symbol of aristocracy and high class. And many prominent figures from medieval times to the Middle Ages wore high heels as a symbol of power. And what was interesting in this whole dynamic is that as much as the heel transformed from this instrument war to symbols of power, it slowly gradually became a, a women's item. I was wondering what it was about the history and significance of women's love-hate relationship with high heels that motivated you to make this film? The inspiration really began with me and my producer friend, Lolo Coyote, and me and her working in the film TV industry, and we were in between gigs. And so we wanted to do our own project, get our name behind something. And so we'll come up with all these ideas, you know, black farmers or gentrification, concepts like that. And then she was talking to me about how she has back pain. She has to go see a chiropractor regularly. And I was thrown back by that because when I see her, she looks very fit and is in shape. So I, I didn't understand what, where back pain, because back pain you usually associate with people who are a little older. And she says, no, it's because of her years of wearing heels. And so we just, I was like, there it is. This little document high heels. It was much more than this fashion accessory. It has so much layers to it. It's, it's an emotion behind it. We just went at it and we started the research phase. We came across a lot of these layers that we wanted to touch on and it really made this documentary pop because of that nuance. Adeline, I have to tell you, one of my favorite parts of the film was the portion that featured the master cobbler. <laughs> he was fascinating. And, and his showing the anatomy of the shoe itself and his work, I don't know if many people realize just 
how skilled a profession that is, particularly since a lot of people think of shoes as something disposable. Right, exactly. Um, and it's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually my favorite part of the document as well. And it's interesting, he's the only male figure who speaks up in, in the documentary. This is an ambitious pursuit. We're taking on a mainstream popular item from A to Z that is not just simply a fashion item, a subtle accessory. There's all this backstory to it. How is it created? How is it designed? And more so, how is it repaired? There's women who love their heels so much that they need a cobbler in their life. They need someone <laughs> who they can go on to on a regular to fix and repair their favorite item. The artistic and design appeal of the shoe comes out vividly in the film. I mean, some of the designs are almost unimaginable, and yet there they are on the floor and for sale. Adeline, what do you want women and men to take away from this documentary about high heels? In the more simple sense, to come on a journey with me. As a male filmmaker taking on a, a documentary on exclusively a woman's shoe item, um, I was a fly on the wall. I let them speak on this. I want people to go on this journey with me, that they'll pick up on the th things that fascinated me as well that I didn't know high heels began with men centuries ago, and then how it's evolving to what it is today. And then more importantly, from a male perspective, a lot of men who watch this will get firsthand feel of why high heels mean something much more than just the shoe. We put this documentary film in a three outline, where the first part is symbolic experience, the second part is health experience, and then the third part is lifestyle experience. Filmmaker Adeline Gasana. His documentary, High on Heels, is streaming now on Amazon Prime Video. The stories and interviews we bring you every day on City Lights are typical of what you expect from public radio. We have the ability to expand your worldview and enrich your life, but to help pay for this programming. We're asking you to make a donation today. We rely on listeners like you to chip in because 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. You can do your part this holiday season by going to wabe.org slash donate. I'm Lois Reitzes. Join this hour by... PBA's Chief Content Officer, Scott Wolfel. Hello, Lois. You know, when you give to WABE today, you'll also help a neighbor in need. That's because we're partnering with the Atlanta Community Food Bank. Your gift to WABE right now will provide 10 meals to an Atlanta family this holiday season. These are people in our community who don't know where their next meal will come from. Think of it this way. If you were to give just $5 a month, 10 meals will also be added to your donation. What a nice holiday gift that would be. We can all play a part with the gift right now at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. And thank you so much. My name is Mimi Mogus. I live in Marietta, Georgia. I honestly can't remember when I began listening to WABE. The last pledge drive, as always, my intention is to make my pledge. And uh, Noel happened to be driving with me in the mornings. Uh, and in the evenings, we're always together and we're always listening to WABE. 
and I heard the pledge drive. So when I saw my mom, I asked her if she had pledged, and uh, I said, "No, no, it's on the top of my list." And other things got in the way that day, and so I forgot. And、uh, when I picked him up from school, first thing when he gets in the car, the radio station is on. Here's the drive, and he says, "Mommy, did you make your pledge?" And I thought, I, I can't lie to him. She said no, but she'd do it the next day, and I told her it was kind of like stealing.、But、he said, "Mommy, you, you have to make the pledge because otherwise it's、uh, like taking something without paying for it." So I felt so absolutely guilty. And、uh, the very next morning, I was at work. The first thing I did was、um, pledge. Naturally, I pick him up from school, and the first thing he does, of course, "Mommy, did you make your pledge today?" And it was a nice feeling to look back there in that rearview mirror and say, "Yes, yes, I did. No, we made our pledge today. Finally, finally." Thanks to all of you who have already contributed. We cannot provide this daily arts and culture coverage without your support, and that's why a donation in any amount makes a difference. How about just five dollars a month? Let today. Be the day when you join WABE as a member. Please visit wabe.org/donate or call us at six seven eight five five three ninety ninety. Five dollars may seem like a small amount, but when you sign up as a monthly sustainer, that five dollars helps pay for daily broadcasts of Morning Edition. All things considered, and of course, city lights. You get a lot for your monthly contribution, and we need that gift right now to keep bringing you all the programs you count on. Five dollars a month makes a big impact. We combine it with donations from your fellow listeners who rely on WAB as much as you do. Public radio only works with you. Contribute now at wabe.org or call six seven eight five five three ninety ninety. When you become a sustainer with a gift of at least five dollars a month. You'll automatically get the PBS Passport member benefit. You'll be able to binge watch masterpiece dramas like Victoria and Poldark, plus PBS NewsHour, along with PBS favorites like Sesame Street, Antiques Roadshow, and more. Best of all, you'll be able to stream Passport anytime and anywhere. Your year-end donation of just five dollars a month helps power everything you love about NPR and gives you access to the best of PBS. Please become a sustainer at just five dollars a month at wabe.org/donate or with a call to six seven eight five five three ninety ninety. Thanks. And remember, your one gift today provides ten meals to a neighbor in need this month. This is our final day of partnering with the Atlanta Community Food Bank in 2020, and your gift will really help. Even a donation of just five dollars a month, our basic giving level, will really make a difference. So please give now at wabe.org/donate, or you can call six seven eight five five three ninety ninety. Thanks. The art of the conductor is a series of four. Online hour-long conversations beginning this Sunday evening, offered by the Temple. Arts journalist Bob Barr will be in conversation with Maestro Yoel Levy, who is music director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra for 12 years, 
and has since conducted internationally. There with us now via Zoom, welcome to City Lights. I see that you will discuss 20th century music. It has been said that the 19th century belonged to the soloist and the 20th was the century of the conductor. How does that inform this series? The development of modern music in the 20th century with these four composers and particularly Gustav Mahler who brought uh, music into the 20th century. Mahler famously said, I am three times homeless as a native of Bohemia in Austria, as an Austrian among Germans, and as a Jew throughout the world. Yoel, I remember your first concert as Atlanta Symphony Music Director. Mahler Symphony Number no. 1 was on the program, and when we spoke about it, you said one of your reasons for including Mahler Symphony Number no. 1 was because there is something distinctively Jewish about his music. I remember it very vividly. You began with the overture to The Power of Destiny. You said you believed in destiny, and that's why you wanted to include it. And then you had this very elegant, bright Mozart Symphony Number no. 34, and then the second half was all Mahler. You are a Mahler specialist. You, you have spent much of your professional life immersed in his music. Where do we find these Jewish elements in his works? We have to remember where Mahler grew up, to a real Jewish family. Uh, even though he was forced to convert in later on in his life in order to get the Vienna State Opera job, which those days with the level of anti-Semitism in Europe and in Vienna in particular, there was no way a Jew can get that prestigious post. In the first symphony, you know, it's very, you know, you have all the music of the Klezmer, mm -hmm. the wedding, uh, it is so clear it's coming totally musical uh, Jewish influence and that's why I really wanted to do it. First, as my first concert is Atlanta Symphony, just really declaring not music, the Klezmer or other things also influenced me a great deal over the years. And but of course, there were other elements of Mahler music that influenced me a great deal, and that's why I fell absolutely in love with his music. In his Symphony Number no. Five. 
there's also a passage that has, if not a Hebraic, then at least an Eastern European sort of Jewish inflection to it. What, how would you describe that portion of the fifth? I agree with you. You can hear it in the funeral march and also in the, the second part, this slow, beautiful, sadness, melancholic. I don't know why every Jewish music should be so sad. <laughs> <laughs> But it is so clear for me that, that it's so Jewish, that melody, after all the turmoil of the beginning of the second part, uh, second movement, which we call it now, uh, suddenly he goes to, to this uh, really incredible music of the soul. If you play with the notes, you can hear some Yiddish songs that come exactly from the same notes, of course, in a different configuration. Uh, you know, there's a famous Yiddish song, I know it came much later by Mir Bistishain. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, if you look at that song, I mean, it's all the same notes. <laughs> please let me explain. means your grand. So, you know, even though he felt ambivalent about this very austere Orthodox background he came from, that part was still emblazoned in his soul, that connection. I think, uh, I think it's important, uh, Lois, to also mention here that uh, Mahler uh, had an approach uh, to the spiritual that was a universal as well. And it comes out so clearly in uh, his music, uh, not just in uh, the Fifth Symphony, but particularly in the Second uh, Symphony, his Resurrection uh, Symphony. he had this way of connecting with all of the great themes of uh, artistic creation and he brings it to the core of his music it's always there the big questions the big spiritual questions and the biggest one of all is where are we going and why are we here yes it's very existential and, uh, you know, we have to remember this turn of the 20th century was a time when the idea of exploring the subconscious certainly was taking hold. M Mahler was among the 
earliest patients of Sigmund Freud. So uh, that these existential questions, search for meaning, all of that comes out here. It's also remarkable that in your series, you will talk about the music of four different 20th century composers, all of whom were prominent conductors. And I see that you will be speaking about the Firebird and the Rite of Spring, among others. With Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, it's been said that everything in the 20th century that comes after the Rite of Spring has been influenced by it. Rite of Spring was 1913. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. It's one of the masterful pieces ever written, and it influenced so many people all over, from from composer to conductors. It was like a, a real landmark in the music world, the right of spring. You know, it's also important, Lois, here to mention the, the important role that the conductor has in uh, creating change in uh, society, how bringing together these uh, musicians to create a great performance is, is in a sense magic. Uh, we could have called this series, he waves this uh, magic wand, some people call it a baton, but it really is a magic wand because it brings together uh, maybe a hundred musicians who couldn't agree on anything and uh, has them play this beautiful and in sometimes like Stravinsky's music, revolutionary works of art. The Chichester Psalms of Leonard Bernstein, this also has a fascinating history. What will you discuss with the Bernstein? Well, <laughs> another phenomena which uh, Bernstein was, he was not only a great conductor, composer, great pianist, great lecturer, involving in human discrimination. And uh, he was a very special phenomenon. I, I'm very fortunate that I had a couple of opportunities to be with him and to see him at work with the Israeli Philharmonic. And realizing what a special man. Uh, we will discuss di different works, not only one. I mean, the Chichester Psalms, of course, it's one of his master symphonic works. I don't know if you remember, but I there was quite a historical performance of that in Atlanta. At least for me, it was historical personally, because the soloist was my son. I do remember. Amir. And... It was very special, very special. Uh, he was a soprano boy singing mm -hmm. the part. But I remember also by that time he was a young boy with a soprano voice also. And Bernstein embraced him like his own child. And it was a very uh, unforgettable experience. What is your goal for presenting this series? Well, we, we just, what we are giving them is a small, very small drop in the ocean because 
you cannot in one hour really describe all the great compositions of each one of them or the influences, but at least we give them an opportunity to to look farther more into the music, into the life, into the influences. And they will not regret because once they will discover each one of these great giants, it will give them something special in life, something they never had before. And the discovery, that's a beautiful, that's the beauty of life, discovery. Former Atlanta Symphony Music Director Yoel Levy and arts journalist Bob Barr, their four-part online series, The Art of the Conductor, begins this Sunday at 6 p.m. from the Temple website. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., Georgia's home for the holidays. We'll hear how several choral groups in our area got together to provide a holiday music video for every day through the end of the year. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.